The relationship we broke, Jesus more than restored it. The heart we destroyed, Jesus more than healed it. He gave us a brand new one. Welcome to the Plainfield Christian Church Podcast. We hope that the message today encourages you. For additional resources to inspire you in your journey with Christ, go to plainfieldchristian.com. Enjoy today's podcast. Good morning, church. Uh, if we haven't had the chance to meet yet, my name's Luke. I get to serve here as one of the ministers at Plainfield Christian Church. If you have your Bible with you, open it up to Romans chapter five today. Romans chapter five is where we're gonna be. And while you're turning there, let me just go ahead and give you my sermon in a sentence for today. Here it is. You were made for life with Jesus. You were made for life with Jesus. Um, you know, I don't really watch the news like at all. If I wanted to see something depressing, it's just faster and easier for me to stand on a scale or look in a mirror, right? I, I don't watch the news at all. But, but every now and then, Every now and then, there's a story that just grabs me and captivates my attention, and I can't let it go. There's this particular type of human interest story. I've seen several of them. I actually saw another one just this morning. You've probably seen some of these. It's a story where there's a young person who's getting their driver's license, and they kind of offhandedly check that box that says that they are willing to be an organ donor. And then their story typically takes a tragic turn. There's some kind of accident, and that person loses their life. And there's this family over here that's grieving, but then somewhere else in another part of the country, there's another family that's grieving because they have a loved one in the hospital, desperate, hoping for a miracle, waiting on a transplant list. And because that person lost their life and were an organ donor, all of a sudden this person gets a new heart. And this story that ended in grief, now this grieving family gets to have hope all of a sudden. And, and what I love about these stories is that sometimes this family over here gets to meet this person and they take a stethoscope and they get to listen to the heart of their loved one now beating again to give life to someone else. There's these amazing stories. It just grips me, compels me every single time. And you can go look them up on YouTube. You can go down a long rabbit trail. There's tons of these videos, right? But I love those stories because even in tragedy, even in grief and loss, there can still be life and, and hope. And really, I think that's a little bit of a snapshot of the story that God wants for us. You see, if you read the Bible in the Old Testament, the first part of the Bible, over and over and over in, God's people, they just seem hopelessly lost. They just can't figure it out. But God sends prophets to his people. And over and over again, the message of these prophets is, hey, just hold on, just hold on. God says, I'm gonna give you a new heart. I'm gonna take out your heart of stone. I'm gonna give you a heart of flesh, a heart that, that works right. And so, then we flip to the New Testament, Jesus comes on the scene and that's exactly what Jesus does for us. And now as we follow Jesus, he does give us a new heart, a heart that is like his and a heart that loves what he loves and hates what he hates and says what he says and, and does the things that he does. And, and, and we were made for this kind of life with Jesus where everything that we do and say, everything about us is done if and with, in and with and through and for Jesus. You were made for life with Jesus, with, with his heart beating inside your chest. That's what God wants to hear. When he puts his stethoscope on your chest, he wants to hear the heartbeat of his son. And yet, if this kind of life with Jesus is really what we were made for, God's word and our own experience tell us that there's two major problems to us living that kind of life. And, and, and the major barrier, number one, problem number one, is just sin. 
Um, sin isn't a word that's very popular to talk about in our world, but it's a word that God doesn't shy away from. And sin is just really simply choosing to reject God's heart. Sin is saying, no, God, I'm not gonna love what you love and hate what you hate. I'm not gonna do what you do or say what you say. I'm gonna do it my way instead. And we talked about really early on in this series through the book of Romans, in Romans chapters one, two, and three, Paul, the guy who's writing this letter, says that everybody, the bad guys, the good guys, and God's guys, he says in Romans chapter 23, all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then last week in Romans chapter five, we talked about how that sin actually hinders us from having the life with Jesus that we were made for. Sin makes us enemies of God. And as we choose little by little to reject God's heart and to do things our way instead, slowly over time, the heart of God inside of us becomes corroded and stale and cold. And honestly, I mean, I could go all over the Bible to talk about this, but I don't even think I have to go to scripture today to prove this, because I think we know this by our own experience, don't we? Um, For example, think of a little tiny sin, like something really inconsequential, something that doesn't seem like that big of a deal. Um, Let's use, for example, the excuses that kids make for not turning in their homework, right? A little white lie. Can we use that as our example today? Um, Using that as the example, here is what one college professor wrote about this. Um, he, He says these words, and I quote, he says, over the course of many years of teaching, I've noticed that there typically seems to be a rash of deaths among students' relatives at the end of the semester. He said it happens mostly in the week before final exams and before papers are due. There's actual research done on this. This is, this is a real thing, and you can guess which relative most often dies. It's grandma, right? Of course, grandma's always the one at risk. There's actually, these are real academic studies. There was a professor at Eastern Connecticut State University who did a real study on this showing that students' grandmothers are 10 times more likely to die right before a midterm exam. And they're 19 times more likely to die right before finals. Um, I actually, on an unrelated note, uh, for my grad school class, I had to turn in a paper this last week. And I'm just telling you, my grandma is lucky to have survived the weekend. Um, And you can tell her that if you see her. But she made it, just barely she made it, let me tell you. Um, To make matters worse, the, the study goes on and says that the grandmothers of students who have poor grades in class are actually at a much higher risk, that students who are failing the class are 50 times more likely to lose their grandmothers than non-failing students. So the professor's conclusion is that he goes on to argue that the greatest predictor of mortality among American senior citizens is the GPA of their grandchildren, right? Now, this is not part of the sermon, right? Bible's over here, Luke's over here for a minute, okay? This is not divinely inspired, just a word of pastoral advice to you. If you are a grandparent, whatever you do, do not let your grandchildren go to college. Um, it will end ruinously for you, particularly if they're not, shall we say, academically inclined, right? My, my grandparents are bold people sending me to graduate school. Now, we can chuckle about that, can't we? But let's, let's use that example, that one Little act of dishonesty, that one little white lie. You know this from experience because we've all done it. That one little white lie actually ends up shaping your heart. That that one little act of wrongdoing makes the next act of wrongdoing that much easier. For example, 
let's say you go to Walmart after this, and you decide to check out in the 10 items or less aisle, when really you have 16 items in your cart. You know who you are, right? <laughs> okay, and, or let's say you, uh, say you board a plane when it's not actually your group's turn. Or um, you uh, tell a little fib about why you were running late. Well, well, every time you say, once you rationalize that first sin and you say it was the traffic when you know it wasn't the traffic, or do you say, yeah, I sent that email, I'm, I'm sure I sent it, when you know you didn't send that email. Or you say, no, honey, I, I never would have said something like that when, when you know you know you said that. When, once you rationalize that first little sin, it makes the next one that much easier. And so those little dominoes of rebellion keep tipping over until eventually you find that you're a little more likely to fudge on your tax return or to uh, be liberal with the use of your expense account at work or to tell a story a little bit more dramatically than it actually happened until eventually, the more we kind of tell those stories to our hearts, the more our hearts actually start to believe it, and those things stop even registering as wrong. I know this. I'm a liar by nature. If you've been on a diet, you also know this, right? Me and a group of buddies, we're trying to lose 15 pounds right now, okay? And it is slow going. I'm not doing very well, you guys. But if you've been on a diet, you know this, right? Because if you've been on a diet, unless you're one of those super people that none of the rest of us want to talk to you, you cheat a little bit on your diet, don't you, okay? I'm feeling very judged right now. Am I the only one in the room who's done this? Thank you. All right, we have to be a place of grace. All right, you cheat a little bit on your diet. You cheat a little bit because you want to satisfy your cravings, but you don't cheat all the way, because you still want to convince yourself that you're on a diet, right? And so you cheat just a little, just a little, just a little, until that one moment comes. And you think, well, you know, I've kind of already blew it. You know, I, I, I kind of already crossed the line, so why not pass the cheesecake, right? We've been there. Am I the only one who's been there? Come on, you guys are staring at me. All right, thank you, goodness. Um, psychologists actually have, have a name for this. They have a term for this. It's called the what the heck effect. It's a true thing. I'm not making this up. It's a, it's a true thing. The what the heck effect. That Well, I've already crossed the line, so what the heck? I might as well go all the way. And we know this from experience. We've done this on a personal level. This also happens, though, on a societal level. Vicki, you look at things like the Rwandan genocide in the 90s, and you look at the Holocaust in the 30s and 40s, and we think, how in the world could that happen? How could a group of people get to this place and nobody stood up and said, this is wrong? It's the what the heck effect. That little by little, as a group, they kind of just tolerated these small acts of hardness of heart, these small acts of rebellion until eventually it stopped even registering as wrong and it was just a natural step to throw it all, the way, all to the wind, say what the heck and go all the way. And man, you've seen these stories just like I have. You look around at these stories that break our hearts. Every person who's ever blown up their marriage waking up in a hotel room with somebody who's not their spouse. Every business person who got to the end of their career and they were exposed after years of embezzlement and they lost it all. Every church leader whose hypocrisy and abuse came to the surface. 
every politician who's been in the game long enough that all of a sudden they find themselves hopelessly embroiled in moral compromise. How did that person get there? Well, you know what? I, I don't think they started out that way. Do you think they got into it saying, you know what? I'd really like to be an evil person. And, and I'd really like to end up alone with my life's work torn to pieces and my reputation in shambles. No, 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 no. That's not how they get there. They got there one little choice at a time. And those dominoes of rebellion start to fall and create a hard heart. So, man, just out of love, can I warn you today? If you're dabbling in stuff, if you're messing around with some little things and convincing yourself that it's no big deal, sin is a very big deal. And Paul says all of us have sinned. We've all fall short of the glory of God. So if that's true, how do we get the heart of God back? How do we live this life with Jesus? The good news is that just like little by little by little by little by little, we lost God's heart. Now the work God wants to do on us is little by little by little bring us back. The little by little, he wants to kind of peel away the layers of the onion and show us our sin. And I'm thankful he does it little by little because I think if God showed me all of my sin all at once, I don't think I could handle it. And you know this to be true, right? Like, if you knew how hard marriage was gonna be, if you knew everything that you know now about your spouse way back when you guys were dating and infatuated and everything was roses and butterflies and you just thought they couldn't do any wrong and they hung the moon, right? Like, if you knew how hard it was gonna be, you might not have followed through. Man, if you knew how hard it was gonna be to raise kids, if you knew all the sleepless nights and all the money and all the heartache, if you knew everything it was gonna cost you, you would have quit before you even got started. But the good news is God does the same thing. He's patient with us, little by little by little, bringing us back. There's one author who says it like this. He says, God is merciful, showing us our true hideousness only in proportion to the courage he gives us to bear the sight. And one of the ways that little by little God peels back the layers of that onion and shows us our sin is by giving us the law. When you find the law in the Bible, when you find rules, commands like uh, do not lie or do not steal or do not covet or honor your father and mother, when you find the commands of Jesus in the New Testament like love your enemies and love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, in Romans chapter five, verse 20, Paul says, the law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. In other words, part of the function of those rules is to show us just how warped our hearts have become. For example, when you see the command of Jesus in Matthew chapter five, verse 48, to be perfect therefore as your heavenly father is perfect. If you're anything like me, my reaction to reading that is how in the world am I supposed to do that? I keep trying to have a perfect day and I've not had one yet, you guys. I'll let you know when I do. How, man, I fall so far short of that. And that's, that's what the law is supposed to do for us. The law is like a flashlight. If my car breaks down on the side of the road at night, before I can even think about what tools I'm gonna need to fix the problem, first I have to diagnose the problem. I have to get out in the dark and pop my hood and get the flashlight out to show me where the problem is. And that's like what the law does. It's like the divine flashlight under the hood of our hearts to show us what the problem is. Um, there was an experiment done at UCLA a while back with 450 college students at UCLA. And they took these college students and they divided them up into two groups. 
Group number one, they just gave kind of a, a task that was pretty trivial. They just said, um, you guys, try to remember 10 books that you were assigned to read in high school. 10 books you were assigned to read in high school. And then to group number two, they said, try to remember the 10 commandments. And they had each of those groups do those exercises, and then they had each group take a test afterwards. And unsurprisingly, this group over here that was required to uh, remember 10 books that they read in high school, they cheated on the test. A bunch of them cheated on the test, kind of like you'd expect college kids to do. But this group over here, the group that was assigned to try to remember the 10 commandments before they took the test, not a single student could remember all 10 commandments. Not one of them. And yet, not a single student cheated on the test. God's law did what it was supposed to do. It was the flashlight showing them that there's something deep down inside the human soul that when you come in contact with the standard of God, you say, you know, I was made for something better. I was made for something better than my natural inclinations. And so in Romans chapter five, Paul reminds us that yes, God's law is supposed to reveal our sin, to show us just how far short we've fallen from having the heart of God. Now, Problem number one with having the heart of God is, is sin, right? Unfortunately, that's not the only problem. <laughs> problem number two is death. It's death. Paul says here in Romans 5 that sin is not the only problem with us for keeping us from living with Jesus, but he says that way back in the very beginning, in the Garden of Eden, after Adam and Eve committed the first sin, death came into the world with it. And ever since then, all of creation has been trapped in this cycle of death. Uh, Paul says this in verse 12. He says, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. So because you and I have each chosen to do our own thing instead of God's, we've cut ourselves off from the God of life, which means now that we deserve death. You might have memorized the verse in the very next chapter of Romans, Romans 6, 23, where Paul says, for the wages of sin is Death, the wages of sin is death. Death is the great bully on the playground of life. And he picks a fight with every one of us. And so God tells us, ironically, that if we wanna live with Jesus, if we wanna have God's heart, then we don't try to outrun death, we don't try to ignore death, we don't try to escape death, we don't try to defeat death, we actually have to live with death in mind. Moses actually prays that in Psalm 90. Moses prays, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. So God, help me to live with my death in mind to give me a heart like yours. And yet, scripture also tells us that there's a negative way to think about death. The Bible tells us that we have an enemy who loves to use death to deceive us. In John 8, verse 44, Jesus says this about our enemy, Satan. He says that he was a murderer from the beginning. So he uses the power of death. He's not holding to the truth, for there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And there are a lot of lies that the devil used to try to distract us from living with Jesus, but one of those lies is the lie that you can outrun or ignore death. You can outrun or ignore death. You know, um, uh, Steve Jobs, you know, the, the Apple guy, he was... He was interviewed shortly before he died by 60 Minutes, and Steve Jobs was asked whether or not he believed in God. And he answered, and he said, you know, I've, I wanna believe. 
And he'd kind of gone back and forth, but now as, as the cancer was getting worse and he was coming to face to face with death, he's nearing the end, he said that he didn't want to just think that all of this knowledge and all this accomplishment and all this wisdom would just go to nothing. He didn't like the idea of death, which is ironically also why he didn't put on and off switches on Apple devices. If you've ever looked at this thing like I have and thought, how in the world am I supposed to turn this thing off, right? It's because Steve Jobs was trying to outrun death. And it doesn't work, does it? Um, in, in 1974, uh, there was a man named Ernest Becker who wrote a book called The Denial of Death. It's a groundbreaking book, uh, won the Pulitzer Prize. Ironically, that same year, 1974, Ernest Becker found God and got cancer and died, all, all in one year. And in this book, Ernest Becker writes this. He says, the idea of death, the fear of it, haunts the human animal like nothing else. So he, he argues that we as human beings, we spend our lives trying to arrange our lives to ignore death as much as possible. And I think we know this from experience, right? Our world really loves the word life. Life is a pleasant word, right? We, we sing songs about life. We, we play a board game called life. We buy life insurance, even though it'd probably better be death insurance, right? It's a, like it's a, more, it's a more fitting title. It's just a kind of depressing. We eat cereal called life. Like you're not gonna walk through the cereal aisle today and see a big box labeled death. Here you go, Johnny, you want a big bowl of death? How are you feeling this morning? You know, just doesn't quite have the same ring to it, does it? Our society doesn't really love that, that D word very, very much. And, and think of it. Some of you have lived long enough to actually see this transition happen. We've gotten rid of the graveyards. No longer do we bury people on the church property or on the family farm. We've pushed the burial places way out to the edge of town. And, and graveyard sounds a little too, well, grave. <laughs> So let's call, it a, let's call it a cemetery. Better yet, let's call it a memorial park. We don't have undertakers anymore. We call them funeral directors. We don't have a death certificate. It's called a vital information card. And I'm not trying to be crude here, but actually even the embalming industry has become big business. There was a survey done recently of mortuary customers, and 75% of them said that they were unhappy with the, appearance, with the appearance of their deceased loved one. And I'm not trying to be crass, but it just made me wonder, what about the other 25% who are like, really pleased? Yeah, that, death actually improved the way they look a little bit. You know, like, I think that's gonna be me someday, you know? Um, ouch, right? Our world tries to outrun death, to ignore death by prioritizing youth over everything. Just look at the advertisements that are being thrown your way. They say, here, here's some Botox. Here's some skin cream. Try these supplement pills. Try a new health club membership, a new surgical technique. Would you like hair club for men? Here's a free membership for a month, right? Modern medicine says that we're living longer. 200 years ago, I would have been middle-aged. Some of you would be a walking miracle, right? Um... Back in Boston a long time ago, Mount Auburn was America's very first cemetery, Mount Auburn. And Mount Auburn, this cemetery, was actually Boston's number one tourist attraction. And so later on, when Central Park was being built in New York City, the movement to build Central Park tried to model Central Park off of Mount Auburn, the cemetery. If you go to Central Park today, it's modeled off of a Boston cemetery. And the slogan that they used to advertise for Central Park was saying, you can have it all without the graves. <laughs> Not a bad slogan, right? 
But that's also the lie the devil would love to convince you of. That you can have it all without the graves. That if the enemy could just distract us, if he could just distract us with accomplishments, if he can just get us to distract ourselves with romance, the thrill of sex or being chosen or the good feeling of being wanted, if he can get us to distract ourselves spending our lives trying to look 20 years younger, if he can get us to distract ourselves by building this facade of invincibility, buying into the lie that if we can just get rid of all signs of weakness or age or vulnerability or ugliness, that if we can just become self-sufficient, strong, beautiful people, that then maybe then we'll build something that will last. If he can get us to distract ourselves by chasing eternal significance in temporary pursuits like raising successful kids or building the perfect house, if he can distract us by getting us to squander away the final years of our lives in the curse of the entitlement mentality that is the myth of American retirement, wasting away the final season of our lives on the golf course in Florida instead of investing in eternal things. If he can distract us with that, then he's won, and the heart of God becomes frozen in our chest as we are enslaved to the fear of death. That's hard, but that's what he'd love to do. It's bad news, right? It's hindering us from life with Jesus. Problem number one, sin, and problem number two, death. So if this is the problem, what's the solution? By the way, here's your cheat code for the day. Every time I ask you what's the solution, the answer is Jesus, okay? <laughs> Jesus. Let's start with problem number two. Let's, let's start with death. Because of Jesus, we no longer have to fear death. Hebrews chapter two says it like this. says, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so since, since we're human, he became human. He became one of us, Hebrews says, so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Because Jesus has defeated death, we don't have to fear it anymore. And, and during Jesus' life here, when he became one of us, the devil tried to tempt him with the fear of death, the same fear of death that he uses to ensnare us. In, in the wilderness, Satan tempted Jesus. He said, Jesus, you don't have to die. You can have worldly fame. You can have cheap satisfaction of your cravings. You can rule the world without even having to go to the cross. Just bow to me. But Jesus looked the enemy in the eye and he went all the way to the cross anyway. And he defeated death. And man, on Good Friday when Jesus died, it looked to all the world like death had won. But it was just a Trojan horse. It was a victory disguised as a defeat because on the third day, Acts chapter two says, God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And now the enemy's weapon of death has been rendered ineffective. Revelation chapter one, Jesus says, hey, look, I hold the keys to death and Hades. Colossians chapter two says, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Jesus has defeated death. That's problem number two. What about problem number one? What about sin? Look back at Romans chapter five if you've got your Bibles. Paul contrasts here how the sin of Adam led to death, but the obedience of Jesus leads to life. Verses 18 through 21, he says, consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. 
The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. And here it is. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Man, did you hear that? Where sin increased, grace increased all the more. That means that there is more grace in God than there is sin in people. Paul Paul can't even describe how much grace God has so that actually in the Greek here, he makes up a word. He just invents a word to describe it. He says grace, grace, grace superabounded is the word he makes up. He says, he says God's, grace, God's grace is like Niagara Falls and your empty little heart is just a Dixie cup. Just try to catch it and it's gonna keep on coming. Where sin increased, grace increased all the more, Paul says, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Your sin problem was nailed to the cross. Your death problem was defeated in the empty tomb. Man, praise God, that's good news, y'all. That what we messed up, Jesus more than fixed it. The hole we dug Jesus more than filled it. The wound we created, Jesus more than healed it. The IV we severed, Jesus more than reattached it. The the power cord we unplugged, Jesus more than reinserted it. The relationship we broke, Jesus more than restored it. The heart we destroyed, Jesus more than healed it. He gave us a brand new one where sin increased, grace increased all the more. I hope you know that deep deep down in your soul, but, but here we are, right? We've actually finally arrived at our text to the, for the day. It was supposed to be Romans chapter six, so buckle up, guys. We, we know, I hope you know, that Jesus defeated sin and death. But even if you believe that in your head, if you're like me, then the question you ask is, okay, but what about me? Like, how do I get that victory? How, how do I get life with Jesus in the nitty-gritty stuff I'm dealing with today? Like, how do I get the heart of God's son beating in my chest? And and Paul gives us the answer here in Romans chapter six, verses one through 11. I want you to read aloud the words in yellow. I'll read the words in white and see what you notice. Paul says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who've died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that All of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once and for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. I think 
the most stunning word in that whole text is the word with. With. We are with him. You were made for life with Jesus. You know, this whole series that we're calling Made New after the baptism t-shirts that people wear, you're gonna get to see a baptism here in a little bit. Um, through the book of Romans, we're just talking about the gospel. We're talking about the good news of what Jesus has done for us and we're using some big words that Paul gives us in Romans to describe it. So we talked about justification and we talked about reconciliation, but today we're talking about resurrection. That's our word for the day. Because you know that when Jesus died three days later, he rose from the dead and we can be resurrected with him. That is the good news. You know, we, we talked at the beginning of the year in our series through the book of Ephesians that the very heart of the gospel is union with Christ. That when you follow Jesus, what is true of him becomes true of you. We said it's like a dollar bill in a book. You put a dollar in this book, all of a sudden, what's true of the book becomes true of the dollar. Where, where the, do, the book goes, the, the dollar goes now. And that's the same with you and Jesus. When you follow him, you are in him, he is in you, his heart beating in your chest. And Paul says, like we just read here in Romans chapter six, that the moment you are united with Christ is in your baptism. That when you go down into that water, you are buried with Christ, Paul says. When you come up out of that water, you are raised to new life with Jesus. You are resurrected. And so that means that actually to follow Jesus, ironically, we stop running away from death and we actually embrace death to become followers of Jesus. Jesus says, if you wanna follow me, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me, that we're crucified with him and that when we die to ourselves, when we die like he did, then in a profound reversal, we discover life on the other side of death. That means that if you've been baptized, that baptism was your funeral. It was the ending of an old life and the beginning of a new one. And that's good news. Because let me tell you, you guys would have hated the old Luke. You would not have liked him. He was arrogant. He was a liar. He was selfish. He was consumed with greed and lust and unholy ambition. But praise God, you're never gonna have to meet that guy because he's dead. And this guy, let me tell you, he's not perfect. My wife's in this service. You can ask her, please don't. Um, <laughs> but this guy has the heart of Jesus beating in his chest. And I hope you can say that today too. You know, I've never had the privilege of going to the Vietnam Memorial in Washington, D.C. I'd love to go someday. Um, I've heard it's an incredibly moving experience. But if you've been there or if you've seen pictures like I have, you know it's almost... It's almost holy ground. It's just a simple black wall with a whole bunch of names etched into it. 58,286 names of Americans who died in the Vietnam War. And you can see people walk along that wall just in reverence that some of them stop or place their fingers on a name, you know, a son or a, an uncle, a fiance, a buddy who didn't come home. But for two Vietnam veterans in particular, Robert Bedker and Willard D. Craig, a visit to the Vietnam Memorial must be especially poignant because they can walk along that wall and they can find their own names carved into the stone. Because of a mistake, both of them were listed as killed in action. They were, they were thought to be dead when the whole time they, they were actually really alive. And you know, that's, that's what you and I can do with the cross. We get to come to the cross and we get to run our hands along its splintered wood and find our names written there and know that what we thought would bring death actually brought life to us, life with Jesus. Perhaps my very favorite verse in the whole Bible is in Galatians chapter two, 
verses 19 and 20, where Paul says this. This is my story. I hope it's your story too. Paul says, for through the law, I died to sin so that I might live for God. Now remember, the law is just the flashlight that exposes how bad our sin problem is. The law can convict you, but it cannot fix you. But the gospel of grace, the gospel of resurrection, the gospel of being united with Christ through faith and through baptism, that is the wrench in the hands of a good God that can install a new heart in you, the heart of Jesus. And so Paul goes on to say in verse 20, for I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's the good news, church. You you were made for life with Jesus. You were made to die with him. You were made to be raised with him. You were made to spend your life not working harder to be better, but allowing him to live through you, his heart beating in your chest. In in just a moment, uh, we're gonna stand and sing and the the prayer team's gonna gather around the edges of the room later on here in the service. They've got their green lanyards on. They'll be available after the service too. And that's for anything you got going on in your life, big or little, whatever it is. We, we wanna meet you, we just wanna care for you, we wanna pray for you. So man, if there's stuff we can do, um, it doesn't have to be some big watershed moment, but we wanna be there for you, we wanna pray with you. But for some of you, it might be a big watershed moment and they'd be the people to talk to as well. But, but for now, before we get there, would you just close your eyes with me? That'd be all right? Could you close your eyes? And I want you to imagine something. I want you to imagine Jesus dying on the cross. Imagine him hanging there, nails through his hands and feet, crown of thorns on his head, blood streaming, the sign above him that says, King of the Jews. And now imagine on the cross next to him is you. Imagine yourself being crucified with Jesus. And if you are a follower of Jesus today, that is your story. Keep your eyes closed, but, but that's what happened to your old self. It, it's dead, it's buried. And if you're not a follower of Jesus today, that can be your story. You can leave it all behind. We're gonna have a baptism Sunday coming up next week. We'd love to have you. You can talk to the people on the prayer team or you can always go on our website, click on the baptism tab, fill it out. We would love, love, love to have you. If you've been putting it off, now's the time. Now I want you to imagine something else. Keep your eyes closed. But imagine three days later, Early Sunday morning while it's still dark outside the tomb. Imagine the light peeking up over the horizon and the ground shaking as the stone rolls away. And the Son of God, Jesus Christ, King of the universe, comes walking out of that tomb alive and victorious. And imagine yourself walking with him. That's the life you're called to live. And so, Father God, this is the life we want to live. We want your heart. We want your victory. We want to be made new. We want your life. We want to love what you love and hate what you hate. We want to be brokenhearted by the things that break your heart. And so, Father, would you just move in the hearts of my friends here to whatever action step it is that you're calling us to, but for all of us, would you just move us to deep, deep gratitude? We love you. Thank you for defeating sin and death. And we can't wait till you come back. It's in Jesus' name that all God's people said, amen. Let's stand to worship our King. Yeah.